This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. This show is brought to you in part by Lego Technic. Lego Technic isn't just another Lego set with bricks. It's real-life advanced building. Some sets have interconnecting rods, working gears, even real electric motors. Technic is for the engineers, the petrol heads, your STEAM students. From sports cars to hydraulic movers, if you build for power and speed, then visit lego.com technic to find your next Technic build and to see how Lego recently built a life-size drivable supercar out of Technic parts. That's lego.com technic, T-E-C-H-N-I-C, Lego Technic, build for real. Welcome to the Science Podcast for September 28, 2018. I'm Sarah Crespi. And I'm Megan Cantwell. On this week's show, I talk with science writer Lizzie Wade about how indigenous people are conducting genomics research on their own terms. And I talk with Ilsa Hall about modeling the future of killer whale populations based on the current levels of PCBs in their systems. And in our monthly book segment, Jen Goldbeck talks with Damon Santola about his book, How Behavior Spreads, The Science of Complex Contagions. I'm Megan Cantwell, and I'm with contributing correspondent Lizzie Wade to discuss her feature on how indigenous people are bridging the gap on genomics research in their own communities. Hey, Lizzie. Hi, Megan. So what exactly does genomics encompass and how have indigenous people been involved to date? Genomics is the study of all kinds of organisms. Genomes here, we're mostly talking about people. It's really boomed in recent years with whole genome sequencing and everything's getting cheaper, everything's getting better, everything's getting faster and easier right. and more exciting. But the relationship between the researchers who do genomics and indigenous communities, particularly in the Americas, but not exclusively, have been pretty tense since the beginning of the field. And this is mostly due to geneticists not really understanding how to interact with indigenous communities and using their samples for things that those communities didn't consent to. It's not that no indigenous people have ever been involved in genetic research, but a lot of indigenous communities have resisted it because they're very worried about how geneticists have treated them in the past. 
One of the ways that they have reached out to indigenous communities is through the Human Genome Diversity Project, and that involved researchers collecting biological samples all over the world to build a public database of genetic variation. And researchers wanted to involve indigenous people, but they stated the importance of collecting their DNA before they, quote, went extinct. And how did indigenous people respond to this outreach? Yeah, this was not the right way to do it. Um, You know, this was in the 90s and it was really one of the first efforts to have a global database of, of human genetic diversity. And Indigenous people felt this was incredibly disrespectful of them. I mean, imagine if someone came, someone you've never met before who has a lot more social power than you, a lot more money than you usually came and said, oh, you're going to disappear. That was news to a lot of the indigenous communities and they did not agree. They also felt, why are these millions of dollars being poured into extracting our DNA and taking it away for other people to benefit from? If our communities are so endangered, which, you know, that's questionable itself, where are the millions of dollars to help us survive? Why do you only care about collecting our DNA and and letting people who aren't us benefit from it and use it? So it actually got termed the vampire project (laughs) because the idea was that researchers were kind of stealing blood samples and never coming back to tell them what they'd done with them, what they'd learned from them. Indigenous communities really feared that they would never see any benefits from this research. The history of injustices perpetrated against Indigenous people in science definitely didn't just start with the Human Genome Diversity Project. So could you give some context to other instances and how the tension kind of formed between Western scientists and Indigenous communities? In the U.S. and Canada in particular, there were actually people who went out and removed dead indigenous people's bodies from the battlefield or massacre sites, boiled them down, turned them into skeletons and sold them to museums. Those skeletons were used for a lot of studies to discuss why indigenous peoples were inferior and sort of deserved to have these injustices perpetrated on them. Like, I mean, a huge, hugely disgusting and grotesque and ironic circle of research participating in colonial oppression. And then that same research being used to justify continuing colonial oppression, like it is bad. These wounds have not lessened and how much, how painful they are. So when Indigenous communities think about their relationship with science, they're thinking about this entire hundreds of years of history of how science has been used to to oppress them, basically. And when outside scientists come in and those outside scientists maybe are only thinking about the decade in which they've been educated, the history is much, much longer than that. And if the scientists aren't really attuned to it, the relationship can go very wrong. And it makes sense that there would want to be efforts to change this relationship. And there have been some leads in that direction, such as the Summer Internship for Indigenous People in Genomics. And that's something that you attended recently. So what is the importance of gatherings like these for improving this relationship? This program is, for short, it's called SING. So what SING tries to do is try to train indigenous peoples themselves in doing genomics and becoming geneticists. So you don't then have the problem of exploitative outside researchers coming in to do projects that the community finds insensitive or who don't really understand indigenous concerns around data sovereignty. And you have people from that community who can do the research Mm -hmm. themselves. They've really been able to meet each other, to sort of think through these issues together to form this community that really is taking a lead and not turning away from this conflict, but stepping right into it and trying to figure out how to move forward, fully understanding and recognizing this past and Mm -hmm. figuring out how to move forward within that context and despite that context. 
And the great thing about Sing is more and more indigenous people are participating, not just researchers who want to learn how to conduct research in these communities, but people from these communities themselves. So why is it so important to increase indigenous representation within genomics, not just outreach into these communities? The true goal of Sing and the true contribution over the long term, I think I agree, is is training indigenous people themselves to do this research. So if you are an indigenous scientist, not only will you have a deeper understanding and appreciation of your community's ideas about how samples must be treated, respect for the community deciding what kinds of research questions to have. Outside researchers will always have different questions than the communities they're studying. But in a Western science model, usually it's the scientists who get to decide what questions are the most important, right? And if you have indigenous scientists, they'll just be more attuned to what their community really, what's important to their community, both in terms of what their community wants to know and the ethics around handling samples, destruction of samples after the studies, keeping data private, things like that. What are some of the projects that genomic researchers are working on in native populations right now? A lot of these projects are still pretty early on, but I think a good example of what's come out of Sing so far is one of the founders, Ripon Molly, is very, very involved in particularly two First Nations communities in British Columbia in Canada. Mm-hmm. He's not an Indigenous researcher himself. So he was initially sort of interested in the peopling of the Americas, which is a classic Western science question, like when did people first arrive in North America? Indigenous communities have historically been less interested in that question. So he's Mm -hmm. been working with these communities in British Columbia to study their population genetics, to study ancient DNA from their ancestors, and to both answer some of his questions, but really focus on what they want to know about their past. So instead of framing it as the stories of these ancient migrations, he's done studies about genetic continuity and showing how long in the past their ancestors have been there and fortifying these links between the present community and their ancestors. It's a good model for non-Indigenous researchers who want to do research with these communities in the future. Right. So these researchers definitely have to prioritize what the community needs are. This does bring some tension between potentially the grants and universities that may have certain expectations for the research they're doing. So what are some of the hesitation and fears that researchers face reconciling between these community needs and what their grant or research institution may need? Yeah, I think that this may be improving a little bit, but one of the foundational values of the Western scientific model is data, is reproducibility and sort of within that, the sharing of data. And so a lot of journals and granting agencies require that researchers make their data public so other researchers can go in and check out what they've done, try to recreate the results, do other studies with that data. With Indigenous communities who have suffered from really abusive practices in the past and and really prioritize consenting to every single study that's done with their samples and really want to understand, yes, we agree to this one, but not this one. And if the samples just end up in a public database, that becomes impossible, right? <laughs> so so that's, that's a tension that these Indigenous scientists and also the non-Indigenous scientists doing research with these communities have to balance. How do you explain the priority of data privacy and data sovereignty, which means that the Indigenous communities have full control over their samples, their sovereign nations, and they can decide what the conditions are for researchers coming in to work with them? 
based off all this research you've done and attending the conference, what was your takeaway from how Indigenous people envision genomics research moving forward while still acknowledging this past? I think that we're at quite an exciting time for this, mostly because of the really hard work of these Indigenous scientists who are trying to figure out solutions and ways forward. My takeaway from meeting all of these people and being immersed in this world is the Indigenous communities are not really the ones who have to do the work to change this relationship. It's, it's the scientists who have to do the work. You have to show up. You have to listen to them. You have to understand this history. And like only when that begins happening will anything move forward in this relationship. All right. Thank you so much, Lizzie. Thank you. Lizzie Wade is a contributing correspondent at Science. You can find a link to her story at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. Stay tuned for an interview with Ailsa Hall about the future of global orca populations. This episode is also brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. The right hire can make a huge impact on your business, your lab, your life. That's why it's so important to find the right person. But where do you go? Instead of posting on job boards, find the person who will help you with LinkedIn. As the world's largest professional network, people go to LinkedIn every day to grow professionally, network, and discover job opportunities. 70% of the U.S. workforce is already there. LinkedIn Jobs matches people to your role based on who they really are, their skills, interests, even how open they are to opportunities. That way, your job gets seen by more of the right people. Most LinkedIn members haven't recently visited the top job boards, but 9 out of 10 members are open to new opportunities, so you can only reach them on LinkedIn. That's why a new hire is made every 10 seconds using LinkedIn. Businesses, in fact, rated LinkedIn 40% higher than job boards at delivering quality candidates. I know that I go to LinkedIn a little bit more than you would expect for someone who is happy in her job because I do network there with scientists, researchers, writers, people I already work with. I add up clips that I've been working on, you know, for videos. The podcast is linked to it. So I go there. I see the jobs. I know what's out there. And I'm sure you do, too. You might get an invite from somebody you met at a conference. Next thing you know, you're looking at jobs. So hurry to linkedin.com slash magazine and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash magazine to get $50 off your first job post. LinkedIn.com slash magazine. Terms and conditions apply. We've known for decades, almost half a century, that PCBs, these polychlorinated biphenyls, are toxic and carcinogenic. In 1978, the U.S. banned their production, but they're still around in the soil, in the air, and in animal tissue. Ailsa Hall is here to talk about her work calculating the effect of PCBs on orca populations. Hi, Ailsa. Hi. How do these chemicals end up in killer whales? And how are they still there since they have, you know, basically stopped production for a very long time? They have been used, as you say, historically for a very long time in capacitors and transformers, in big industrial electrical goods and in plastics. And so they've been leaching into the environment very slowly as these capacitors and transformers get disposed of. But because they're what we call persistent organic pollutants, they break down only very, very slowly. So despite the ban on their production, this transformation has not happened um, as quickly as we would perhaps have liked. 
The PCBs end up in the tissue of the killer whales because the whales are not only in the water, but they're also eating animals that have absorbed PCBs over time. Exactly. So they're what we call lipophilic. So they, they have a very high affinity for any fat particles. So once they're in the environment, they're washed out from the land into the ocean through rivers or coastal waters. And then they find their way, first of all, into the sediment, into the phytoplankton. And then they get consumed through the zooplankton and then into the fish. And as you go up through each level of the food chain until you get to the top predators like killer whales, then they what we call biomagnify. So you get this mass increase. Killer whales live a long time. And when they have offspring, they end up passing on these PCBs. That's right. So because they feed their young on this very high fat rich milk, and that's the same for all marine mammals, they mobilize their blubber stores into the milk and then, then they get transferred into the offspring. But that's when the risk happens for, for the calf um, and it can reduce its survival probability. Right. So this is where the, the health effects of the PCBs on the killer whales seem to come into play. Yes. Yeah, so both in the offspring and uh, to some degree in the adult. So even though these compounds are trapped, if you like, in the, in the fatty tissue, in the blubber, as they get mobilized during times when the energy reserves are, are low, so the animals are starting to break down the fat because they need that energy storage, then some of the chemicals get remobilized. And we think that's when they start to interfere with the endocrine system and with the immune system. That may be fine if you never get exposed to a nasty bug, to a pathogen. But of course, if a bacteria or virus comes along and your immune system's compromised, that's when the trouble starts. Okay, well, let's turn to what you did in your study. You started with a really big data set of these levels in the whales. Can you talk about where that data came from? Myself and my colleagues from, from Denmark put together all the information we could find on concentrations of PCBs in killer whales throughout the globe. So these have come from animals that have stranded, died, and then samples have been collected and analysed for these compounds, but also from live biopsy samples. They take a very tiny piece of tissue from a live animal, which obviously gives us an idea of what's happening now. And that gave us information on this global exposure for all the populations we could find. You did see a difference in terms of the levels of PCBs and where the whales were known to live or where they died. That's right. So, so they've got different um, uh, feeding habits, different ecotypes of, of killer whales, some that prefer eating fish and some that have evolved to survive on the higher predators themselves, so the seals particularly. Mm-hmm. And obviously, the higher up the food chain they feed, then the more exposure they have to PCBs. And we found that quite a lot of the populations, perhaps more than we expected, had levels high enough to be particularly toxic. Mm-hmm. So if you're eating seals, you're going to be accumulating more of this than if you're eating lower, like a more of like a fish diet. That's right. Yes. We've looked at other species, not just killer whales with this model. So we've looked at humpback whales um, and done a risk assessment on them. And because they feed on much smaller fish and krill, then their risk of effects is much less. What about location? These populations have different food sources, but they also live in proximity to different parts of the world with different PCB concentrations. What did you see when you analyzed that? The populations that live in the coastal zone and the more highly polluted, if if you like, and and populated parts of the globe um, in that sort of central belt have much higher levels than those that live in the high Arctic and in Antarctica. One of the things you did in this paper was try to project out based on this data, what's going to happen according to your model to killer whales in 10 decades? 
So that's the main drive for this modelling approach is, you know, everybody says, well, so what if these compounds are in the animals? Does it really matter for the population? And that's our main conservation objective is to, to look after the population abundance of these species in different parts of the world. And so to have a predictive model that might show us what could happen to these populations in terms of their abundance over time is, is very useful. So we, we built this model as a risk assessment to see what we think might happen, particularly to the highly contaminated populations, whether we think those are likely to collapse and maybe even go extinct or not. And we found that quite a few populations are vulnerable if they continue on the same trajectory. Let's talk a little bit more about your results. You do see the disappearance of some of these populations. How about the overall health? How much of a decline do you expect to see globally in, in the whales? I think it's not all doom and gloom. There's yeah. populations that we think are doing very well and, and will continue to increase. And it all depends on the sort of robustness and how well their ability to survive and reproduce, so how fecund they are. So if they have calves every three or four years, then that may be enough to even overcome some of the the effects of of the PCBs on survival. So I think it was about 50-50, half the populations we looked at are likely to either decline over the next 100 years and maybe even collapse completely. A couple of populations are going to be stable, so they won't increase in number. They'll just the survival reduction will outweigh the the numbers of animals that are being born. And then about half the populations, you know, around the the Alaska, as I say, and and around Norway and and in Antarctica, they're doing fine. So they probably continue to increase. I have to say that we haven't included any other factors in in this approach. This is sort of a relative predictive model. We haven't been able to include what would happen if you looked also at the other stresses, effects of noise, effects of prey reduction, you know, other effects of climate change. So we're purely looking at one factor. So obviously the conservation managers would have to look at this in context with other stresses. What conservation efforts are underway now? Yeah, I mean, in the US, there's there's a lot of good conservation objectives and initiatives to try and assist uh, in improving the environment and the habitat for these animals, reducing, you know, human stresses, noise and industrial development and that kind of thing, particularly, as I say, the the interactions with maybe ecotourism, trying to bring that down to a minimum. But these more difficult things to control, like the chemical pollutants, which I probably know more about than the other factors, is the tricky one to control. As you said at the start, we've done a lot to um, reduce the inputs through the banning of their production and use. But because they are persistent in nature and, you know, as the animals die and their carcasses sink to the seafloor and then the pollutants are released back from their fatty tissue back into the environment and the whole cycle starts again. So even if we had some really good ways of cleaning up the environment and we shouldn't not pursue those, maybe some time before we see a reduction because of this longevity of them in the environment. And it's just the very small bacteria in the bottom of the food chain that are there that can help break them down. That's how you would get them out of the environment. That's how you would get them out of the environment or or prevent them going in in the first place. I mean, there are stockpiles maybe in China and some of the Eastern European countries that still have still to be released. So we've got to make sure that the Stockholm Convention is being adhered to to prevent them coming into the, the marine environment in the first place. But now they're there, cleaning up the oceans is tricky. Elsa Hall, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you very much, Sarah. Elsa Hall is a professor at St. Andrews University and the director of the Sea Mammal Research Unit. You can find a link to her story and perhaps a picture of a whale at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. Don't forget, up next, we have our book segment. This month, Jen Golbeck talks with Damon Santola about his book, 
How Behavior Spreads, The Science of Complex Contagions. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this month's book segment. We're reading How Behavior Spreads by Damon Santola. We all know what it means when something goes viral, but what's the science behind how that works? And how do our different social connections affect whether we accept a new idea or new behavior? It turns out that some of these things can spread with a single contact, but others are more complicated and require reinforcement from our most trusted relationships. These are the ideas explored in the book. Damon Santola joins me. Thanks so much for being with us. And can we start off with some of the basics? What are strong and weak ties? The question we typically try to answer in this area of research is how does the pattern of connectedness in a society affect the spread of behaviors across a large population? The most famous answer to this question is Mark Granovetter's strength and weak ties argument. Uh, Granovetter essentially argues that we have two kinds of social ties, either our strong ties, who are our close family and friends, or our weak ties, who are the sort of casual acquaintances that we bump into sort of at an airport or, you know, at a conference. The important difference between them is, first of all, that our strong ties, obviously, we know very well. There's a lot of emotional value or valence on the relationships. There's strong affect. Whereas our weak ties, like I said, they're casual acquaintances. You don't know them very well. They don't sort of play a huge role in your sort of sense of your social landscape. And why does that difference matter? Structurally, that is in terms of the graph topology of the network, there's also an important difference between strong and weak ties. So strong ties, the people that we're closely connected to, tend to know each other. So your close friends tend to know each other and your close family members tend to know each other. And that means that strong ties form triangles in the social network. By contrast, your weak ties basically are far away from you socially, which means that you and your close friends don't really have any connection to them or their close friends. And so the link between you and a weak tie is a bridging link across an otherwise large social distance. Because these weak ties are are basically bridging links across the social network, they perform the sort of really valuable social function of accelerating the diffusion of ideas, information, and behaviors across the social space. How does this manifest when we're talking about people doing things, especially hard or dangerous things? My interest in this really grew out of my interest in social movements and how social movements are really interesting behaviors to try to explain because many of them involve confrontation with dangerous or even deadly force. So to explain how those kinds of behaviors spread, it requires something that's more than just an individual wanting to do it. Preference doesn't explain why people would put themselves into those kinds of situations. Usually the explanation is there's some kind of social process that recruits people to collective action. Uh, I looked at histories of innovation diffusion and social movements and the spread of social norms, almost all of the empirical data on the spread of those kinds of behavior change processes show that they spread through basically clustered strong tie networks, not through weak tie networks. What does this have to do with things going viral? Yeah, so when we tend to think about how behavior spreads, we almost always think about um, the spread of a pathogen. So we think of something like the influenza virus or measles or HIV AIDS. And it's pretty straightforward to make the inference that in any of those situations, an infected person comes into direct contact with a susceptible person and there's a transmission of the infection. And my work picks up on that question of how do we understand the spread of these kinds of contagions through society? and, And is it really true that we can understand the spread of social movements the way we understand the spread of pathogens. What's so interesting about the findings for me is that 
it turns out that most of the cases where we see successful spread of a social movement or an innovation, it doesn't spread in the same way that a pathogen would spread. In fact, the theory of viral diffusion doesn't do a good job at all of explaining when and why these kinds of social change events succeed. So why is it the case that if I'm exposed to an idea by a weak tie, that it might not stick as well as if it comes from strong ties? The work that I've done has basically shown that that way of thinking about diffusion certainly does work for what I call simple contagions, which are contagions that require only a single contact in order to be transmitted from person to person. And a virus is the quintessential example of that. But that logic of diffusion really fails us when it comes to complex contagions, which are really any contagion, any kind of behavior that requires social reinforcement from multiple sources. Talk about that a bit more. What are some cases when I need multiple sources to reinforce an idea? One of the reasons why you may require reinforcement from multiple sources is credibility. You can think here of adopting an expensive new technology where you want to know the technology is effective and valuable before you spend money on it. But now think about adopting that kind of technology at the behest of an organization. That investment then comes with reputation costs, which is if you make a bad decision, a lot of people know about it. So this is a situation where you really want to see what other people are going to do before you make a decision yourself and are held accountable for it. And so credibility then goes kind of hand in hand with legitimacy, which is, is this a behavior that other people find valid? Clearly, the more people who have adopted it, the more social reinforcement and the more um, approval there is for that behavior. Another kind is sort of less rational calculation, which is simply emotional contagion, which is the more people who become excited about an activity or an event, the more likely you are to become excited too. And we can see this in the spread of lots of kind of activities where everything from emotional excitement and political rally to the spread of intellectual excitement about you know, certain academic topics, where the more people who get involved in it and talk about it, the more interested you are in getting involved in it and talking about it too. Give us an example of a technology that was adopted because these rules were at play. The classic example for this is any communication technology. One really dated example that I kind of love, nevertheless, is fax machines, because, you know, it's such a bulky technology. And when it came out, you know, why would you need a fax machine? You can just call someone on the phone. It was expensive and it seemed relatively useless because you can't do anything with one fax machine. But the more people have fax machines, all of a sudden the inherent value of fax machine increases to the point where it goes from a luxury to a necessity. Really, any kind of social technology or now social media technology is like this, where the more people who are participating in it, the more, the more important it becomes for you to participate in it as well. What about platforms like Facebook? Does this apply there or do the overwhelming number of weak ties we tend to have there kind of dominate what changes our behavior? Before the 2013 hearings by the Supreme Court about same-sex marriage, there was a, an initiative to spread basically a profile change on Facebook, which was the basically putting an equality sign on your profile photo. That spread in about a week to over 3 million Facebook users, which is really stunning. I mean, it's the largest social diffusion process on, in the history of Facebook. And that sounds like a, vi a viral diffusion process. But what the data show is that actually people were relatively reluctant to just adopt it based on a single contact. And one reason for that is that at the time, same-sex marriage was a very contentious thing. And if you adopted that symbol on your Facebook profile, you were signaling to a lot of people from a lot of different communities. You know, you have your, your family on there. You also have your high school friends, you have your college friends, you have work contacts. And if you see one person adopt that, but the rest of the community that you're connected to hasn't adopted it, 
then if you do, if you sort of change your profile photo, it's a signal that maybe tells people that you're in the LGBT community or tells people that you're behind a movement that maybe you feel sympathy for, but you're not necessarily personally a part of. And so it's not a clear signal and you're not clear what it communicates about you. And you're certainly not clear about how it's going to be interpreted by the people in your network. And you don't want to start, you know, a contentious conversation as part of your media profile and have to mediate between contacts who might see these postings from each other. But what winds up happening is that as people see other people adopting, particularly people from different parts of their social community, what they wind up coming to sort of appreciate is how legitimate, how widespread and accepted support for same-sex marriage was. And then as a result, they would adopt and become part of the next sort of stage in the, in the diffusion process. Damon Satola, thanks so much for talking with us. The book is How Behavior Spreads, The Science of Complex Contagions, and it's out this month. Thanks for listening. And as always, we'd love to hear from you on the Science Magazine books blog, Books et al. We'll be back in October with another book for your stack. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. Or you can listen on the science website, sciencemag.org slash podcasts. There you'll also find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. To place an ad on the science podcast, contact midroll.com. The show is produced by Sarah Crespi and Megan Cantwell and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S.org slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.